today on EdgeFX. If people can control access to food, then can we also think about community control of schools? Can we think about community policing? Can we also then think about other ways to have more control over the decisions that are made for us without our engagement? Sociologist Monica White joins us to talk about her new book, Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance and the Black Freedom Movement. We discuss the underappreciated role farming has played in the work and thought of key civil rights heroes. We also talk about the trouble with the concept food deserts, the challenges facing the Green New Deal, and how, when it comes to the contemporary food justice movement, food is only the beginning. I'm Brian Hamilton, and this is EdgeFX. Hi, Dr. White. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> and we're joined also by, by six students from my course, Race and Environment in U.S. History, here at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Um, and we're all very excited about your new book. Thank and we're you. really glad it's out in the world and we, we've enjoyed diving into it. For such a long time, agriculture in African-American history has been thought to be you know, primarily a system of exploitation mm-hmm. and oppression. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering, when did you first come to think that it could be instead a means of resistance? Yes. So I think that for a long time, agriculture in history, and not just African-American history, has been seen through a lens of exploitation and oppression. I think that the way we grow food, the stolen labor from the continent of Africa and the stolen land from the indigenous communities that were here, and the ways that we have grown food historically has been of exploitation and oppression. Um, African-American history more clearly sort of shows that through the plantation slavery and sharecropping and tenant farming and Jim Crow laws and what have you. But I think if we look thoroughly at other cultural relationships to agriculture, we will also see moments of, of oppression. And so for me, when did I come to begin to think of this as resistance? So... Knowing the history of slavery, tenant farming, and sharecropping for African-Americans was a part of the conversation, you know, just of growing up, of my education. But I knew a different story from my personal experience. Uh, My father has always had a garden. My grandmother was in a wheelchair. She had a container garden. And even my sister grew food, corn, and eggplant on the east side of Detroit. So I knew that food production in and of itself was not exploitive and that there were very genuine reasons that people were growing food. And when I had a chance to move back to Detroit to care for my parents, I needed a research topic. I was going to teach at Wayne State University. And in my dissertation, I was studying the autobiographies of former members of the Black Panther Party, the original Black Panthers, and recognized that there were conversations that some of the authors were having in terms of how they were using growing spaces. So Winnie Mandela talks about under apartheid, when folks would see congregating African-Americans, they would automatically assume that these were political discussions that were taking place. But nobody questioned what they were doing at the garden. So this is a place where they could actually have those political conversations, right? And so that was, you know, one of those things like, hmm, okay, I'll put a pin there and I'll, I'll see what happens. So returning back to Detroit, knowing my own family's relationship and, you know, just growing food and hearing about this burgeoning sort of urban ag movement that was happening in Detroit, I started engaging with folks who were part of the movement and was struck by the ways in which they describe their work. And so it wasn't just a matter of, gee, this is an amazing tasting tomato, but it was really sort of a conversation around 
the person who makes a decision about how my food is grown also impacts my life in significant ways. And so hearing members from the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, I approached them and said, hi, I'm interested in understanding African-Americans who are returning to agriculture. And they offered me a whole different doctoral program. It was a whole series of classes, a whole language that I was introduced to, and a whole way of thinking about the importance of knowing where the seeds came from, knowing how the food was grown, and also being able to benefit from the produce once it was harvested, making sure that it was of a regenerative model and not an extractive model. And so it was through the members of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network that I really learned about food production as resistance. And it was at that moment, I mean, you know, when I read about Mrs. Mandela, that was just one of those things. It was like, oh, wow, that's pretty creative. You know, that's pretty amazing. And then thinking, are there other examples? And then going back to Detroit and seeing folks in Detroit doing a similar kind of thing. And I wanted to articulate that work collectively. I wanted to connect what Mrs. Mandela was talking about to what was happening at D-Town Farm, to what's happening all over the country in many places where African-Americans are using agriculture as a strategy of resistance and resilience and establishing uh, community wellness. But also, I believe that connecting with food production allows us to think about what sustainable cities look like. And so I think that agriculture is an important part of that conversation. Thank you. Yeah. And the book really sketches out a long historical arc, the kind of thinking. And so to get us into that history, I want to invite in one of the students into the conversation. This is Brooke Holder. Hi, Brooke. Hello. <laughs> um, so now the first chapter of your book, it explores the legacies of Booker T. Washington, George Washington Carver, and W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm -hmm. And in high school, in history classes, we often focus on how they are different from sure, each other. Sure. But how do you see their work intersecting and what were some of their common goals? Sure, great question. It's really interesting how we reduce historical figures to, you know, just a few low bullet points, right? And so Booker T. Washington, I mean, I think all three, Booker T. Washington, George Washington Carver, and Du Bois have all been sort of reduced. I think of Chimananda Adichie's conversation around the danger of a single story. And what happens when you focus on one frame, it allows you to overlook other components, other elements that could be included, and a different way to think of a nuanced way of thinking about history. So for me, it was difficult because in thinking about these historical figures, I practically had to delete that file of what I thought I knew of all of them, and then open myself to thinking about, are there ways that I could read their work and articulate it both in a time-specific frame but also bring it to a contemporary frame so that their ideas would be useful. And what I thought, most of the time you hear about Booker T. and Du Bois really sort of combative, right? You hear the talented 10th, and you hear a lot about um, Booker T. Washington's phrase, cast your buckets where they lay, which is really problematic when you're talking about communities that are oppressed and exploited yeah. and that kind of thing. So the ways that I think that they intersect, I think that both believed in education, um, for different purposes and different ways, but they both believed that you needed an African-American population community that was educated. I think that they both talk about the importance of community in significant ways, the importance of institution building for African-American communities. I also think that they talk about the conditions of segregation and what can happen in a Black community when segregation creates, although oppressive, an opportunity. In other words, both talk about the legacies of slavery, but also using this moment of segregation as an opportunity to, to build. Du Bois really illustrates what that looks like when he talks about if we are segregated, then using segregation to make sure that we take care of all of our needs and in taking care of all of our needs, once 
we are integrated, then we can think about the ways to interact with other folks. And I do think that Booker T. Washington also recognized the importance of Black institution building, Black community building in significant ways. The differences, obviously, are, you know, are we investing only in education and those kinds of occupations where, you know, like the specialized fields, or are we going to educate so that we can take care of all of our needs? And they had different perspectives on that. But Booker T. Washington actually invited Du Bois to Tuskegee for a job. And so there are lots of conversations that people don't hear. And I think that, you know, looking at the full trajectory of their lives, that while that debate, that argument was one moment in history, I actually believe that there was more um, synergy around their ideas. And if Du Bois was talking about the talented 10th and Booker T was talking about the other 90 percent, what does that mean for how we move forward? Well, so then you, in the book, you then take these legacies of Du Bois and Carver and Washington and see how they're embodied by really inspiring agricultural activity by black farmers in, in the post-war era. But before we get into the kind of the happy mm-hmm. stories, I want to make sure that we all understand kind of the many things that made farming and agriculture yeah. difficult sure. for, for black Southerners. We know sharecropping and tendency, and we also know there's increasing mechanization right. in the cotton industry. And then there's also just a terribly bad cotton market. And then we have these federal policies that if they're not... If they're not racist in the way that they're created, they're certainly racist in the application of yes. them in different ways. Um, yes. And then there's another one that I had not paid attention to in, in my study of the period, which is that when you have these black Southerners that try to vote, they're taking a big risk. Of course, we know that there's violence that's, that's yes. a constant threat there. But there's also ways that retribution for trying to get the vote is directed at their farms themselves, not yes. their, at their ability to farm. Sure. Can you tell us about a couple of those instances? Sure. So, um, and I, I appreciate the question. As you mentioned, folks who tried to vote but also tried to organize and to create these cooperatives were victims of all kinds of responses. And so you see lynchings, you see various forms of uh, and styles of, of murder, land dispossession, evictions, and people being fired. Agriculture in general, like food production, is hard work. (laughs) But hard work within the context of a racially hostile environment makes it even more complicated. And the ways in which white communities tried to reduce the political organizing of these cooperatives was in denying access to resources such as seeds, such as fuel, but not just things that made it difficult for them to do their job. As farmers, they refused certain kinds such as home goods, home items, you know, just various kinds of things that that folks needed to buy. In addition, there was in Mississippi, they rendered economic boycotts illegal. In other words, if we decided that we were being treated unfairly and we organized and said we're going to protest or march, the legislature made a a law that rendered economic boycotts illegal. So here we're saying we're being mistreated. We organized to speak out on that mistreatment, and it is then considered against the law to do so. So there were lots of reasons that I think people had difficulties in fulfilling their job as farmers that was also complicated by their right to vote and to participate in the political process. And there were all kinds of egregious, horrific kinds of situations that happened to folks who spoke out against what they saw was happening. Thanks. So let's turn to the more hopeful parts of the book. Because <laughs> it's you. mostly a very hopeful book. And so and to get us into that, we're going to throw it to another student here. This is Isaac Matthias. Hi, Isaac. Hi, how are you? So through my studies, I've become a fan of Fannie Lou Hamer, and I was really struck by your characterization of her as an organic intellectual. Could you say more about what you mean by that and just how seeing her in that way helps us better appreciate her work at Freedom Farm? 
Thank you. I love Mrs. Hamer. And if you know, I don't know, I mean, I don't think it comes as clear, her relationship to Madison. Uh, Mrs. Hamer was a regular visitor. She did a lot with the Center for Cooperatives. There were folks with Measure for Measure, a philanthropic organization of white progressives who offered, a, who funded a lot of the activities that were happening in the South. Through the work, I've met folks here who knew Mrs. Hamer in really like serendipitous kinds of ways. So knowing who she was as a historical figure fails in comparison to understanding, reading, visiting her uh, final resting place, putting my hands on the documents that she signed. I mean, just my reverence for her is I mean, even now, this moment, I have goosebumps just talking about how incredible she was. So usually I talk about the three wise men. I talk about Booker T. Du Bois and George Washington Carver. I say these are the three wise men, and Mrs. Hamer is the sister who showed them how to do it, right? <laughs> so you all are theorizing about it. You all are studying it. But she's going to show you what it looks like on the ground. And I think that that is significant because the academy is often prioritized and privileged over working folks. And I think this is an example of what happens in that case. And so we often think about the scholars, but it, our scholarship is meaningless if we don't have folks to whom this work speaks and on whose shoulders we stand and the ways in which we can actually implement these ideas. So Mrs. Hamer had what was considered a sixth grade education. And that's not what we think about as six years, right? What we're talking about is a school year that starts after the harvest, which is around November, and then before the spring, when the crops need to be planted, we're thinking maybe March, April-ish. And so this isn't even a whole school year. And so I think the beauty of Mrs. Hamer's work is that she, while wasn't formally educated, was able to really intellectualize access to food as both a weapon, as a weapon of oppression, but also as an instrument of liberation and freedom. And so to see what she had been through, both in terms of her need, her desire to fight for civil and human rights, the kinds of um, physical assault, the ways in which the hostility of a Mississippi context was very hostile and brutal. You know, just driving down the street was dangerous in many cases because they, folks knew who she was and they knew what her message was. In the midst of all this, her courage comes through in her implementing Freedom Farm. And I just think that it can't be ignored the degree to which she contextualizes and literally frames you know, restricting food as a weapon. And then if that's the case, she wanted us to stay in the South. She said, everything comes from the land. If you leave the land, you leave everything. And think about it. Her idea was that you're leaving an oppressive condition here, but you're moving to a condition that you don't even see as oppressive in the automobile plants of Detroit or out West, out to California. And so I just feel like, you know, when you read her ideas and you hear what she's saying and you look at what she did, I think that there is no other explanation for her brilliance than to be called an intellectual. And I do think that that's often... Contrary to how we believe intellectuals should be defined, right, as members of a university, we sort of privilege that kind of formal training. And I think that concentrating on the formal training allows us to overlook some of the organic brilliance that really comes through when we watch what people do and listen and ask them questions as to why they're doing those particular things. So starting with Mrs. Hamer's Freedom Farm Cooperative, each chapter zooms out to a larger and larger scale until we get to the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, mm -hmm. uh, which is still operation today, and, and it's still working to organize black cooperatives across the whole South. Can you tell us a little bit about it and how it's managed to persist all these years? Sure. 
So the Federation of Southern Cooperatives is an incredible organization of beautiful people who believe that rural communities should have what we need and we should use cooperatives as an economic tool to provide those resources that are necessary. So they do all kinds of work on community development projects. They do housing projects. They're involved in food systems work in many ways. And they also support and initiate agricultural cooperatives. They help to organize agricultural cooperatives. I didn't mean to say initiate because one of the beautiful parts about the Federation is that the Federation is a supportive organization. They don't come in and say, here's what you need to do. What they do is we listen to what you want to do and we find the ways to make that happen. And what that does is it allows the community to hear the power of its own voice and gets people you know, excited and hyped by having the example of what it means to pull our efforts together, to work cooperatively and collectively, and to transform our communities. And so one of the members of the Federation with whom I have a very close relationship, Mr. Ben Burkett, he tells me that if it hadn't been for the cooperative, he's not sure that he would have been able to keep the land. And this land has been in his family since the 1800s. And so being able to organize and to have a cooperative where there are other farmers means that they don't have to pay as much for some of the supplies that they need. They're able to pull their resources together in terms of a harvest, and they're able to receive a larger profit because they're, they're organizing together. And I just think that it's a beautiful example of what happens, not when you come in and tell a community what it needs to do, but you allow community members to tell you what are the conditions that they're concerned about, and then how do we work around that to come up with solutions that are sustainable. I think that's an important example. I was hanging out with some education policy folks mm-hmm. a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing them complain that what really frustrated them with how we talked about education in the United States is that we expect schools to solve all of the country's problems, right? Mm-hmm. We want schools to be able to solve poverty and obesity and mm-hmm. racial wealth gap and mm-hmm. you know, keep up with China and you know, fight sexism and crime and you know, also get this workforce ready for this unknown economy to come and all these things. And it's just too much to ask that mm-hmm. <laughs> a school could perform all these miracles at yeah. once. Lately, I've been wondering whether we're headed down a road where we're going to talk about food the same way, yeah. you know, the boosters for food. And, and of course, it's quite a diverse lot. They talk about it also as if it's maybe it's a cure-all for all the troubles facing, yeah. in this case, urban communities, these white college graduates who just rush there in the summer. And I'd imagine that like, it's, it's a good gig, right? A good summer intern gig to do this kind of work in gardening because mm-hmm. it'd be outside and yeah. it's got the food. Whereas it's less exciting to think about maybe canvassing for healthcare. <laughs> or, or like learning, like learning about like zoning to, yeah. to lobby for affordable housing, or or even like interning at a credit union. All these other things that also could be community development, right? Yeah. But they aren't maybe aren't yeah. as much fun as farming. <laughs> right, but, right. but but then when I, when I read the book, though, one thing that was really inspiring was that all the activists that you write about, they're talking about the benefits of food, much mm-hmm. the same way we do today. Mm-hmm. But none of them stop with food, yes. right? Yes. Uh, they, it's always part of a bigger project. Can, right. can you give us some examples of that? That's right. Sure. So I do think that we expect too much of schools and we expect too much of food, right? We think that access to food is a problem. We know that. But I do think we see it as a panacea. If we just give people enough to eat, the problems of the world would resolve it. And I don't think that that's that's the case. I think that food is often a strategy. Food is a starting point, is a beginning of conversation. I mean, just think about it in terms of your own life. You know, food is a love language, right? You know, when they say to demonstrate your love, you prepare something for someone. You know, if you have a successful something and it's a celebration, it's around food. I mean, you know, just and think about all the different ways that food shows up in our society. And so the folks that I work with, nutrient-rich food is absolutely part of the reason that they're doing it. But food is only the beginning of the conversation. It allows us to begin to think about, wow, okay, so if we can control the food, 
that we eat? What else do you think we can do, right? So, and, and I've just seen it happen in Detroit. So you have a, a vacant lot that has overgrown grass and you've got a mom who then goes and cuts the lawn to make this a space, a growing space. It becomes a place for food production. It becomes a place where music, it becomes a cultural space. It becomes a health space, all of this. And you get to know your neighbors, people that you didn't necessarily know. And, you know, and, and then you begin to have conversation. And then the distance between you and your neighbors gets shorter. You begin to think about them in other ways and for other reasons. Hey, I saw somebody sitting on your porch. Just wanted to let you know. And you just look at see how food organizing allows us to come together in really important ways. And I've seen that in terms of if people can control access to food, then can we also think about community control of schools, education, public education? Can we think about community policing, community security? Can we also then think about the other ways that communities are concerned about particular issues, but also fit under an umbrella that allows us to have more control over the decisions that are made for us without our engagement. And so I just see food as an instrument of community engagement. It's an opportunity. It's a necessity. But it cannot solve all the problems. It's not possible for it to solve all the problems. But it is a part of that conversation. Wow, yeah. And to keep thinking about about the contemporary kind of problems in urban communities. I'm going to throw it over to another student here. This is Rachel Azuma. Hi, Rachel. Hi. So one of my classmates and I, Brooke, are actually doing research on food deserts and mm -hmm. food insecurity. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could uh, use your own definition for food deserts and then maybe give us a solution to food insecurity. Yes. Well, I'm happy to hear you guys are working on that project. I also want to push back a little bit lovingly. The phrase food desert is something that activist communities find offensive. And the reason they find it offensive is for several reasons, right? One, it's problematic because it assumes that there's a lack of, right? When you say food desert, it's a lack of. Well, we know that the desert has a very healthy ecosystem. If you don't believe me, stay on the desert overnight and uh, you'll get to see how alive it, the space really is, right? And the other part of it is it doesn't concentrate on the structural forces that disconnect people from access to nutrient-rich food. In other words, it acts as if it's something naturally occurring and not something that is based upon intentional decisions of race, class, nationality. Like, who are the people who live in that community? What are the demographics? And how do we decide who has the right to access to nutrient-rich food? Now, the work that I do started in Detroit. And in Detroit, we have 140 square miles. And in 2011, I think it was, um, the last major chain grocery store closed. 140 square miles. Yet you cross 8 Mile Road and go into the suburbs, and you may have four or five major chain grocery stores in a one-mile radius. There's scholarship that shows that when you have African Americans and whites, and they have all the same kinds of levels of education, kinds of occupation, number of children, you know, annual income, African-Americans are still over a mile away from accessing nutrient-rich food than their white counterparts. So how do we explain a lack of access to food in a way that really captures all those kinds of structural factors that I think get overlooked when you say food desert? Oh, it's naturally occurring. It happened on its own. No, it didn't. People made decisions about where should we place a store? How do we decide what groceries we should carry? And those kinds of decisions. So the community prefers concepts like 
food apartheid, food redlining. There are other kinds of ways that people are, other language that people are using. I don't know if you all, if you're doing this work on food access, there is an activist, a dear friend of mine named LaDonna Redman. And she says, don't try to find a pretty phrase to make it feel better. Call it what it is. And she says it's white supremacy, right? It is that white communities have access to the kinds of things that African-American communities and Latinx communities often have to fight for. And so she really sort of captures it, not just in terms of, you know, something naturally occurring, but something that people are making intentional decisions around. So I hope I, did I answer your Yeah, definitely. Okay, yeah. great. Okay. So we can think about a lack of access to nutrient-rich food. I believe it's indicative of a structural failure. We know there is absolutely no reason for anybody in the world to be hungry. We produce more than enough to feed absolutely every person. Absolutely. However, we make decisions about where we should locate what we should locate, how should we process, and what should our food look like? I mean, if you go to the grocery store and you look at the produce section, everything looks the same. That is because the foods that are bruised or battered and what have you have been discarded. The scholarship says that about a third of the food that we produce goes to waste. I'd be willing to say it's probably even more than that. I just don't feel like that's a good enough way to describe food that never even makes it to the grocery store, never even makes it out of the out of the fields. Like, I think that there's a lot of wasted food that I don't think gets considered in that. So I would say it's a system failure. I would say it's a structural failure. I would say it's a failure of distribution. I would say it's a failure of a society to make sure that our basic human right, access to food, is met. Having said that, and thinking about what solutions might be, I think absolutely local food movements are incredible because it allows us to reconnect with the, you know, just the process of food production. But I also think that it offers us a certain level of respect for those who labor in the fields were often overlooked. Right. So we, you know, when we say our grace, we're grateful. But I think we don't honor and appreciate the people from seed to plate, all the hands who have touched our food, who have made it possible for us to be fed even in conditions where there are producers that are food insecure themselves, right? So I'm growing your food, but I don't have enough food to eat. I think that's a structural failure. So to me, one of the solutions is local food. Another solution would be a living wage, right? Quality education, looking at the ways that our system, our structure has failed communities and thinking about the things that are necessary. I think it's more than just saying, oh, well, we need to teach people how to eat. I promise you, most people want healthy food for their children. Good choices, most folks want to. But there's convenience factors, there's financial factors, there's time factors, time constraints. There are all kinds of reasons that people make other decisions. And we're doing the best we can. And so I think when we increase the mechanisms, we change the structure to make sure that, we, that actually we demonstrate providing nutrient-rich food for everyone and not just those who can afford it, I think that there's a different kind of conversation that takes place and food won't be the only thing that gets fixed when we when we come up with a new structure and a new way to talk and think about it. But I'm proud of you guys for the project that you're working on and would love to see it. Let's keep thinking about solutions. There's been a lot of talk this year about the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. And you know that would seem, in its resolution form, it would seem to favor these causes of sustainability and justice mm-hmm. that you're talking about and that you mm-hmm. write about with D-Time Farm in Detroit. Yeah, you know, the first New Deal wasn't the best for black mm-hmm. farmers in a number of ways. And now you've written this book that demonstrates the promise of grassroots, democratic, wow. you know, this autonomous, small-scale agriculture. And I wonder, from that perspective, do you have concerns about the effects of even, you know, well-meaning mm-hmm. top-down mm-hmm. federal policy? 
Thank you for asking this question. <laughs> and I have to I have a confession to make. Uh-oh. I do. I have a confession. Policy is critical in deciding everything, right? You have to have some basis upon which you make decisions for people's lives. I often feel that policy has failed because when we think about who's at the table, that's only one part of the conversation. I remember when I was working on my dissertation, my dissertation chair said, I was writing the autobiographies and he said, pay attention to what you see, but also pay attention to what you don't see. I'm like, bruh, what do you mean what you don't see? If you don't see it, then is it there? What's going on? I don't understand what you're saying. But the gift that he gave me was looking to see what's there, but also whose voices are missing. So for me, a, a really good federal policy or any policy has to be inclusive of all the people who are impacted by those policies. And I don't know what that process looks like. It becomes much more cumbersome. But in order to make sure that there is equity in you know, the dispersal of whatever resources or whatever decisions that we make, we have to make sure that all those that are impacted and influenced are at that table and in conversation. And that often doesn't happen. So while I am always optimistic and always hopeful, just a few questions that I have what are the efforts in creating this policy of community engagement? How do you make sure that even if a person isn't at that table, that their ideas are, right? Their ideas show up. And how will the least of us be supported? How will we make sure that there's space and time and consideration for the small farmer, but also the large farmer that policies are often written to benefit? Before we let you go, I got to ask what's next for you. And, you know, I hope that sharing this important book with the world keeps you very, very busy. Oh, and I know you. it already has. Thank um, you, thank you. But once things calm down a little bit, you know, <laughs> what project projects will be turning sure. to next? Sure. So while I was working on the book, I met an incredible family, the Paris family. You hear me talk about. Paris? Yes. Oh, okay. Reverend Paris. Yeah. He's the one who told me you can free yourself when you can feed yourself. That was the first nugget that was offered. I mean, you, as a researcher, you have an idea that you see something you're like. I think something's there. Is something there? And when I met Reverend Wendell and he said that, it was like, pay dirt. You know, I was like, cha-chit. Like, this is exact. you know, this, this phrase was exactly what I wanted to capture. And so Reverend Wendell and his brother, Mr. George, and his wife, uh, Miss Alice, they have an incredible history with the Federation. Their father, the elder George, was the first black USDA loan officer in the state of Alabama. I want to see if he was the first black USDA loan officer in the country just because we know that Alabama and Tuskegee were the first for so many things. So the elder Paris worked for the USDA, but was also active in civil rights. His two sons, one spends his life working with the USDA, and the other son has been active in every social movement of his life. Talking to Reverend Paris, there are a million organizations, that's my slight exaggeration, <laughs> but you know, just to really sort of see the way that they connect Food production and freedom and civil rights, human rights is pretty amazing. They've allowed me to interview the family and I'm working on a family biography. Wow. It is just such a beautiful story that I'm really excited to, to share with you. Um, another project that I have been super excited about is a Black Angling Project. Huh. In Madison, yeah. you don't see a lot of African-Americans congregating in spaces outside of churches. Um, at least this has been my experience. And so to see African-Americans all around the lakes, 
all, you know, doing all this kind of shore fishing. One of my favorite coffee shops is Lakeside. I mean, it has this beautiful view of the lake and then you don't feel like, okay, I'm sitting here writing and I want to be outside with farmers. So you kind of feel like I'm inside, outside, kind of inside, outside. But to sit there, you see so many people, so many African-Americans fishing. And so my question has often been, where is the scholarship that captures the reasons that they're involved in fishing? In other words, we know that in the same way I'm trying to problematize or make the claim that agriculture as a strategy of resistance, I believe that there's some element of angling as resistance. So what I mean by that is we needed to know the waterways for the Underground Railroad. We needed the fish as a source of protein. I don't see the scholarship that really captures fishing and families who were able to buy their family members out of enslavement because, you know, I mean, it's, and, and fishing was an instrument to do that. And so even today, when you see grandmothers and their grandbabies out on the shore, I don't read in the scholarship the cultural connection that really captures the reasons and the ways that African-Americans are still fishing, still teaching their children their, you know, how to fish, how this is an intergenerational activity, how it's a social activity, and what is the history that really sort of captures African-Americans' participation in the environment, as uh, is the title of your class. <laughs> so that I'm really super excited about. And every time I go by the lakes and I see black anglers, I'm, you know, my phone, I'm always taking pictures, and I'm just like, I know, I'm ready to get, I'm ready to collect some more data. And yeah, so I'm super excited about that. And the last project, and I don't know what form this is going to take. I don't know yet. But I'm interested in developing a project, a research project that I engage students where we will here or the South teach research methodology and then canvas the South, do farm site visits and ask about agricultural and environmental knowledge. One of the things that Mr. Briquette told me as an alum of Alcorn State University, he said, you know, he came from a farm family. He goes to college and everything they teach him in ag school was the opposite of what he was supposed to do, what he learned to do, you know. On, and so he's like, you know, okay, so what? So um, it's always been fascinating to me to walk the land with a farmer and to hear them talk about what they know. And it is a lot of information. You know, I'll be with Mr. Burkett. I'll pick up a, a, a feather and I'll say, Mr. B. And he'll say, well, that's a, the formal name is, and the informal. And I'm like, wow, you know, just a treasure trove of information. I want to know, what do you know? How do you know it? And what is it about a farmer? I think we have really reduced farmers. We have stereotypes around farming that is, once again, the danger of a single story. I can ask a farmer to look at a bag and they can tell you how many acres, what will the profit be, the yield. I mean, they do high level mathematical, you know, computations in their head. They'll say, oh, yeah, that'll be about such and such in a profit. I mean, you know, they can do that. And so I really want to have students involved in collecting data that it teaches students how incredible and amazing farmers are. It teaches them research methodology. It teaches them how to engage and how to understand a community that I think has been overlooked and ignored. But also, how do we share that information? How do we capture this agricultural environmental knowledge? Because a lot of it isn't something that you learn. There's not a manual for it. There's not a book. So much of, of agriculture and so much of farming is trial and error. And I really want to sort of, I want to find some way to collect this intellectual material. I'm so excited. I'm Thank so excited. you. We're going to have to have you back on the show. I love to, it. Yeah. We'll <laughs> book you now. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Wood, for the time and for this wonderful book. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I've enjoyed you. 
You've been listening to Monica White, Associate Professor of Environmental Justice in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies and the Department of Community and Environmental Sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. White is the author of Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance and the Black Freedom Movement, published at the beginning of this year by the University of North Carolina Press. To learn more about the book and her work, visit monicamariewhite.com and follow her on Twitter at TheGardenGriot. That's The Garden, G-R-I-O-T. I'm Brian Hamilton, a doctoral student in the Department of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I was joined in the interview today by Brooke Holder, Isaac Mathias, and Rachel Azuma, three students from my summer course, Race and Environment in U.S. History. Three other students, Eric Blad, Joe Foster, and Cecilia Monroy, produced today's episode with me. You can learn more about our course on my website, brian-hamilton.org, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brian F. Hamilton. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to Edge Effects wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. That's EdgeFXMag. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeeffects.net.